0: Hello and welcome to a recap of the 29th Annual European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, or ECMID, which was held in Amsterdam this past April. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Ryan Shields, who serves as an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh.
1: Hey, Aaron, and welcome to our audience. And we're certainly excited to be here to try and recap a very busy meeting that was four days long into the next hour podcast for you.
0: No short order, right, Ryan? Not at all. Ryan, how far into this podcast do you think we can get before you mention the words Seftazidim and A.B. Bactam?
1: All right, let's be honest. I'll set the over under at about 35 seconds. We'll see how this goes.
0: Okay, but in all seriousness, ECMED, you guys, what an amazing meeting. If you are a board-certified infectious diseases pharmacist listening to this podcast, by the way, before we get into how great ECMED is, please go to the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists website, which is sidp.org backslash podcasts to find the link, and you can actually take assessment questions and get BCIDP credit for listening to Ryan and I nerd out over the next hour or so, let's face it, we're probably going to talk for more than an hour, but we'll try um, over the science of this really awesome meeting. So again, you can get BC IDP credit for listening to this podcast. And if you are not a board certified infectious diseases pharmacist, welcome. We're really glad you could join us today. So as Ryan and I have alluded to several times now, we have a lot to cover. This year was in fact the largest ECMID ever, which featured 3,500 abstracts that were selected from actually 5,500 submissions. So pretty incredible. And and congratulations to all the scientists who had their research presented at this meeting. There are over 13,000 attendees from 130 countries. Um, and so you can see, even by these numbers, just how incredibly diverse ECMID is and how jam packed this meeting was with really cutting edge science. We also want our audience members to know that most of what we cover today you can actually watch online for free or download the abstracts at ECMIDlive.org.
1: Erin, you're exactly right. ECMID has really become a great meeting, and I can't wait to go back next year. But let's try to put this into some context for our audience who maybe have or have not been to ECMID previously. What are some of the things you took away from the meeting that you think really makes this a great and exceptional meeting?
0: Oh, right, that's a good question. You know I do love to attend an ID conference. But, I mean, I love it because you just learn so much and you get to meet so many brilliant people. And whether that's at ECMID or a different ID-related conference, this is a time that people are coming together to share the newest practice-changing data in our field. I know when we were getting ready to leave, I poured through the program, and it's like, how do I be in seven places at once? I swear, every hour, every session, it's featuring these world-leading experts, or even better, beyond the world-leading experts. This is a time to meet new and emerging scientists, researchers, and clinicians with just these fascinating ideas and a unifying desire to improve the care of patients With infectious diseases. And to me, that is just awesome. And that's why we go to these meetings and and bring our data to these meetings. In particular, I love walking through the poster hall here and hearing everyone around you is speaking a different language, but we're all learning the same things and there to just share with each other. And that's, that's really meaningful. And then, you know, with ECMED, it's not awful traveling to a new city.
1: Yeah, going to Europe is never a bad thing and exploring new cities is something we can all get on board with. You know, my takeaways from ECMED is it's like walking into your favorite ice cream shop. You cannot go into this meeting and find something you don't like and fall in love with. And I think one of the things that Aaron alluded to that makes it really unique is you have very scientifically driven data from key experts that are working at the bench top or maybe in preclinical drug development, spanning all the way through clinical studies and even summary and nice reviews from some of the leading experts in the world. So no matter where you're coming from or what your background is, the odds are you can find something at ECMID that you'll really enjoy and take away from. And this is also a great meeting for trainees, right? You can send trainees here to not only present their data, get critical feedback from experts and get to bump shoulders with some of the names that they've only read in papers and they can find them at meetings like this. So it's really an exceptional meeting.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. There's also uh, there's good scholarship opportunities for trainees. The registration isn't crazy, so all around pretty awesome. I do love ice cream, Ryan. Um, so yeah, this is everyone's meeting, and that it's not just a niche for pharmacy or medicine or microbiology. It's really all comers in the field of infectious diseases, and I think that's that's important too. Um, so there's so much data shared. Where do we even? I we have to start the actual podcast now, where we talk to. People oh, we're going to talk
1: about data We here? have to talk
0: to people about the data, Ryan. Okay. Somebody so, should have warned me about this. <laughs> people want to hear about the data. So I think let's just start with our, our biggest takeaways. So you, do you want to start and then I'll go, let's talk about what we probably feel are the two biggest trials or our realms of data to come out of this meeting.
1: Yeah, I'm going to start with ASPECT-NP. I knew these data would be presented at ECMID and I couldn't wait to see them. So ASPECT-NP is a randomized double-blind phase three clinical trial comparing the efficacy and safety of ceftolozane tazobactam to meropenem in patients with ventilated nosocomial pneumonia. And I think what makes this, this particular abstract and data so provoking is ceftolazane tazobactam is a drug we've had available on the market now, but we're all accustomed to using it at its labeled dose of 1.5 grams every eight hours for intra-abdominal infections and urinary tract infections. Well, certainly word has gotten out on the street that we need a higher dose for pneumonia, and these are the data that are really underpinning that higher dose. So based on ELF and preclinical population PK studies, they've decided, hey, we need a higher dose of ceftolazane-tazobactam to treat pneumonia, and here's the clinical data that uh, have studied that higher dose. So before I get into the data, I do want to mention this is poster number 1917, and one of the cool things you'll find on the ECMED Live website is you can go click on this poster, and right above this poster, you have Marin Koloff, the lead author, walking you through the data. So you can follow along on the poster as he's explaining the data to you, and I think this is another thing that makes ECMED so unique is the way it delivers information to the audience, uh, and this is a good example of that. So check out Aspect NP, and I'm going to briefly kind of summarize some of my major take-home points from this study. Take-home point number one, the three gram dose. This is a a unique dose as we've already mentioned. Take-home point number two though, is this is a study that was exclusively done in ventilated patients with pneumonia. So many times we get stuck in reading these hospital or ventilator associated pneumonia studies and we're thinking, man, that's just not my patient population. That doesn't seem like the patients I see. These were really sick patients in in this study and they included two important groups within this ventilated pneumonia cohort. One is patients with ventilator-associated pneumonias, which is how we would typically define it, being on the ventilator for greater, greater than 48 hours before you develop pneumonia. But the second so, subgroup that I think is so important is ventilated hospital-acquired pneumonia, or patients that were not on the ventilator for 48 hours or developed pneumonia requiring ventilation. This is really a sick population that is probably understudied in the field and was done very well in this study. So they included these ventilated associated pneumonia patients, and they randomized them on a one-to-one basis to receive ceftolazane tazobactam three grams every eight hours, versus meropenem one gram every eight hours. And both drugs were given as a one-hour infusion. So if you jump right into the study results here, they randomized more than 700 patients, and they worked through an intention to treat analysis where they looked at safety endpoints, and then they get into the microbiologic intent to treat analysis. In table two of this poster, if you go take a look, what you'll see is that the baseline characteristics of these patients are listed here. And again, this is a good reminder that this is a really sick patient population. You see here in in table two, or if you're just listening along at home, um, there's a number of important points that point to us as this being a sick population. First, almost a third of patients had Apache II 2 scores greater than 20. And we know that these are sick patients in our ICU represented by this severity of illness score. The other thing that I think is important from a PKPD perspective is 20% of patients in this study had augmented renal clearance. So renal clearance as they defined is greater than 150 milliliters per minute. Um, So certainly they're eliminating drug faster than our normal populations and also representative of this hyperdynamic ICU population that we all see. The other thing that I want to point uh, the audience attention to is most of the patients in this study, not surprisingly, were in the ICU, and the distribution was about 70% of patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the other 30% of patients had this ventilated hospital-acquired pneumonia. Jumping then into kind of the microbiologic intent-to-treat analysis. Um, a couple of important points here in the pathogens that were identified in this study. So when we think about VAP or hospital-acquired pneumonia, we're thinking about pseudomonas, and indeed, pseudomonas was well-represented in this study. About a quarter of patients in both the c tazobactam, and meropenem arms had pseudomonas isolated from their lower respiratory tract. The, about the, another 70% of patients had Enterobacteriaceae, And I think if this is the first time you've seen these data, one of the things that jumps off the page when you look at the Enterobacteriaceae breakdown is the number of ESBLs that were included in this study. 30% of pathogens in the microbiologic intent-to-treat analysis were ESBL Enterobacteriaceae, and certainly these are very important data coming on the heels of Merino now, where we learned a little bit more about Piptazo for ESBLs compared to Meropenem. Here now we're looking at Ceftoltezo compared to Meropenem, and a lot of ESBLs were included. Now when we look at randomized controlled registry studies like this, one of the important things that helps with randomization and when you're interpreting the results is how many patients were infected with a pathogen at baseline that were resistant to the study drug. In this study, the groups were comparable. About 80% of patients in the and tazobactam group had baseline susceptible pathogens and 89% in the meropenem group. So this wasn't a major driver of outcomes. About a similar proportion of patients had susceptible pathogens at baseline. Finally, let's talk a little bit about efficacy here. The primary endpoint of Aspect NP was 28-day all-cause mortality. And compared to both groups, there was no difference in all-cause mortality in either group. But an important subgroup analysis was done here, breaking down patients by ventilator-associated pneumonia and ventilated hospital-acquired pneumonia. And indeed, in the ventilated hospital-acquired pneumonia, this population that encompassed 30% of patients in this study that we think of as being very critically ill, there was indeed a mortality benefit for ceftolazane-tazobactam, which is a very interesting finding, but this is a subgroup finding and certainly merits future investigation uh, as we see these data come forward and certainly something we're going to be looking for when this paper is eventually published. Other than that, the other, end, other endpoints included clinical cure at test of cure visits and clinical cure among the microbiologic evaluable population, and there was no differences in terms of non-inferiority between those two groups. The final outcomes of this study were all about safety is a higher dose of three grams every eight hours of ceftolazane-tazobactam, well-tolerated, and there was no important safety signals here, which is important for a registry study. And in fact, these kinds of registry data did lead to the drug being approved for hospital and ventilator-associated pneumonia because of these findings. When I'm looking at safety data, I'm thinking about GI adverse effects or other things that might be related, particularly C. difficile when I'm thinking about beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations. And again, no warnings here that ceftolazane-tazobactam would be any less tolerated than we expect. So conclusions here, ceftolazane-tazobactam was non-inferior to meropenem at a dose of 3 grams every 8 hours, and the dosing is very important in this study. But holy crap! That's a lot of ESBLs and a lot of pseudomonas, and ceftolazane-tazobactam did very, very well in these data. Um, So I think it's a striking finding and certainly something that we want to follow up with and take a look when the paper's published to see how these data break down. Now, there was a second poster presented about aspect NP. This is poster number, it's an oral poster, 0302, so 302. Um, And this was a subgroup analysis looking at microbiologic outcomes based on the pathogen. And the one important aspect there that, uh, no pun intended, with aspect NP, didn't even mean to do that one. But the one important thing to take away from there is there was higher rates of microbiologic eradication for pseudomonas aeruginosa among patients that received ceftolazane tazobactam. So if you were guessing before the study was done, you'd say, hey, we know ceftolazantazobactam is a really good pseudomonal drug. Maybe there's some signals here. I don't think it drives the overall outcome differences that we might see in this ventilated HAP subgroup, um, but certainly something to keep an eye out for. The other important point about this microbiologic sub-study that was done is there was no difference in clinical cure or microbiologic eradications for this ESBL subgroup as well. So really important findings, and we can't wait to see the data when they're eventually published.
0: That's awesome, Ryan. Thanks for that summary. And so as Ryan mentioned, this did get an FDA approved indication for HAP and VAP. Um, So the package insert is updated. Notably, something interesting when this package insert came out that I don't think we were expecting, the dose for end-stage renal disease and dialysis is actually kind of three times what we were giving for IAI and and UTI. and so the dose that they recommend for H D is a two point two five gram load and then followed by the four fifty Q eight. And I think when we were all going rogue prior to these data and just giving double the dose, one point five to three and so on down um, the line, we we were giving, I think, three hundred Q eight, and there's some published case reports of HD ceftoltazo pneumonia treatment using that dose. So just all the the people prescribing this drug and, and monitoring this drug, that is kind of not a discrepancy per se, but the dose is different than we, I think, expected in dialysis.
1: Yeah, you're right. And in the real world, we have to manage patients that have renal impairment. Oftentimes, these kinds of patients get excluded from the study. They excluded patients in aspect NP that were on end-stage renal disease or on hemodialysis. Um, but when you're looking at adjusting uh, these drugs for renal impairment, these are the kinds of data we need as clinicians to be able to use these drugs appropriately. Um, so we're waiting to see the rationale there. Is this tazobactam exposure or something else? But we know that what the product label says. And until we have further information, this is the dose we should be prescribing for patients. You know, so, this
0: package insert got released the day we released our new pit dosing guideline and then had to subsequently update it on the same day.
1: Perfect timing as it always works out. Oh, yes. So Aaron, I'm talking a lot here. Why don't you give us your biggest takeaway from ECMID 2019?
0: Oh boy. Well, Aspect MP is a tough act to follow and you know how much I love grim negatives, but you know, I have to respect gram positives too. And I think my biggest takeaway is definitely the CAMERA 2 trial. It's funny, the, the ID attending I'm rounding with on service this week said to the medical student and the resident earlier this week that if they get nothing from their time on service, that he wants them to leave with a serious respect for Staff Aureus. And I think that's so true because, again, we focus a lot on gram-negative resistance. Gram-negative resistance is sexy, but gram-positive infections are common, they're complex, and all things considered, we really don't have good answers for treating these infections, especially for patients with persistent bacteremia, whether it be MSSA or MRSA. So camera two, this was presented on Tuesday during the conference during the late breaker session by Stephen Tong. And so this was an open-label parallel group randomized controlled trial at 29 sites throughout Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Israel. They enrolled adults with MRSA from at least one blood culture, um, and they were randomized one-to-one, so um, to the different arms, which I'll describe in a second, and they had to be randomized within 72 hours of index culture. And so they received either vancomycin or daptomycin monotherapy, which let's be honest, everyone got vancomycin monotherapy, and then or they got combination therapy with Vanco or DAPTO+, Plus, seven days of an antistaphylococcal penicillin, and that could have been flucloxacillin, cloxacillin, or cefazolin. So they screened 1,400 or so patients. They ended up randomizing 356, and 345 were ultimately included in their modified intention-to-treat analysis. Kind of an important thing that will come up later, but they defined AKI in this study as a 1.5-fold increase in serum creatinine at any time within the first seven days or a patient with a new need for renal replacement therapy. All right. So when we walk through their study population, it's it's what we would expect. So staph aureus bacteremia, 96% of the population had ID consults. They did look at Vanco dosing for all the people um, that often point to Vanco exposures and all troughs were in the 15 to 20 range for the most part, at least the the means were um, in the study population and everyone was randomized by day two. 61% 61% of the population actually received a beta-lactam in the first 72 hours, which was allowed per the protocol, because that's real life, right? Your patient gets admitted to the emergency department, they get vanxocin, gram-positive cocci in the blood cultures, then you deescalate. And so that's, I think, kind of important to note that, I mean, technically, and that 61% was across the whole study population, but we are giving, quote, combo therapy often um, in real in real life. But so 61% of the population here had that exposure, and then another 15, 59% also received another concomitant nephrotoxin in that first 72 hours. The majority of patients had an SSTI source, 32%, and then the next most common was primary bloodstream infection at 24%, and then osteo at 20%. So only 5% of the patients in this trial had endocarditis, just something to point out. And what they looked at here was a primary composite and uh, their primary endpoint was a composite outcome at 90 days. And that included all cause mortality, persistent bacteremia at day five or beyond microbiological relapse or microbiological treatment failure, which they defined as a positive sterile site culture for MRSA at least 14 days after the patient was randomized. So In the modified intention-to-treat population, this composite primary outcome occurred in 39% of patients in the monotherapy arm and 35% of patients in the combination therapy arm, which wasn't significantly different. They also found no difference in day 14 mortality, micro-relapse, micro-failure, or really any outcome. Um, Interestingly, so 20% of patients in the monotherapy arm had positive blood cultures on day 5 compared to only 11%. In the combination arm. So, combination therapy clearing blood cultures a little faster, which is what we've seen in the in vitro data, but that led to no difference in mortality. And in fact, 16% of the patients in the the monotherapy arm had 90 day mortality as opposed to 21% of patients in the combination therapy arm, which wasn't statistically significant, but again, the numbers are small. Now here was kind of the kicker and here's what literally sitting in the audience, I'll remember this forever probably, everyone like audibly gasped when the authors revealed this and they did a really nice job walking through these data of no difference, no difference, uh, maybe a slight difference in mortality and then man, they're like last bar, they clicked this slide and they found that 30% of patients in the combination therapy arm experienced AKI compared to only 9% in the monotherapy arm. And this actually caused the DSMB to terminate the trial early. It was a number needed to harm of about five. And so this was not expected. Um, And this is why we need randomized controlled trials. And so this is a huge takeaway from ECMID. And when you kind of break this down, they walked through the combination therapy arm and they said this was this seemed to be driven by patients that received flucloxacillin or cloxicillin, because 35% of those patients experienced an AKI compared to only 7% of patients that were receiving vancomycin, which is comparable to that 9% baseline rate of patients in the monotherapy. But again, those are subgroups. We can't really draw conclusions from that. But kind of to summarize camera two, they found that beta-lactam combination therapy with vancomycin or daptomycin had no benefit on the composite outcome of death or subsequent complications. It increased your risk of AKI by threefold. Again, that's lumping all antistaphylococcal penicillins together. Um, and it decreased persistent bacteremia at day five, but... I mean, is that a good surrogate outcome? We're not really sure what persistent bacteremia means, and we know clearing blood cultures is a good thing, but that hasn't really panned out to have any clinical benefits. So, so we're missing something here still, which I think is what I really take away from camera two. What we gain is that, well, again, the importance of doing randomized controlled trials. And honestly, it's pretty amazing when a bunch of like minded clinicians get together and want to make a difference, the things that they can do for relatively low cost. And I mean, millions of dollars is still a lot of money, but this was by no means a super high budget randomized controlled trial. So I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, we also know that Vanco monotherapy isn't optimal, and Dapto's probably no better vincsafazlin maybe something there um, and it was kind of suggested after that what we we still need so much more data in this space so we want to look at ceftaroline monotherapy daptoseftaroline combination therapy vincsafazlin combination therapy i mean i still there's, there's still just a lot more to learn and it's the other really cool thing about camera 2 that we took away from ECMID is kind of That fact that probably a lot of people listening to this podcast already are aware of these data because of Twitter and because of social media and because conference data can now be shared rapidly through these kind of online forums, which is so cool how you can clinicians have such ready access to these data and how authors are accessible. So even the Camera 2 authors, a few of them are on Twitter as well, and they would respond to people's posts and questions about the trial, which is just this like constant interactive journal club, which I think is amazing.
1: It, it really was, Aaron, And in, in sitting in the audience with you, we're listening to this study, and we're all expecting that they're going to tell us combination therapy was better for staph aureus bacteremia and we're just waiting for those data and then they show well wait it's not better and we're still kind of scratching our heads we're figuring out well what did they do in the study that was wrong why isn't it better and then they show us this AKI data and there was this palpable gasp like whoa what
0: yeah it was crazy
1: we're all gathering ourselves and then we're figuring Somebody has to put this on Twitter. So we all turn to you and wait for you to get it on, <laughs> get it on Twitter because this is such a unique finding. So it speaks to your point of why we have to do these studies, right? We had these preconceived notions going into camera two, what the data might show us based on some of the preliminary data for the rationale of the study. But in fact, they found something very different. They found a new finding. Uh, and I think th- to your point, these are the reasons why these kinds of studies have to be done. Now, I want to get back to this Twitter point, Aaron, because you know this is an important point in our friendship. I was not on Twitter when we met. And surprisingly, you still let me be your friend, but slowly, slowly broke me down. (laughs) And now I have to tell the audience I've officially been converted and I'm on Twitter. Uh, And I was apprehensive at first, right? I I wanted to know what my engagement level was going to be, how much content was I going to have to put out. Um, But I can say that this has really been a, a game changer for me personally to be able to see all the cool data that's out there, have accessibility to all the data, uh, and then certainly, as an investigator, you get to learn about new things going on in the field. Some of your data gets disseminated. So Twitter really is a cool thing. And I think for the audience sitting at home, maybe they weren't able to attend ECMID, but certainly they're able to follow along online. So Aaron, this is your expertise. Tell us, what are some of the things that were trending at ECMID, or, or maybe they were viral or went viral? I still have no idea what those terms mean, but what was important at ECMID that went on Twitter?
0: Ryan, you asked me four times before we recorded this what viral meant, like four different times we discussed the difference between viral and trending.
1: I think I should ask just, five times, just
0: so you guys know. Okay, so, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so what went viral at That These are this is important to discuss. I mean, conference chitter, Twitter, Twitter, conference Twitter has really changed the game. I mean, it has. You you honestly don't even have to attend the conference. I mean, I'm not saying that at all. You should absolutely attend these conferences, but you can gather these data by following these things online. And so using conference hashtags to make things trend, to link all of the things that are happening at the conference together has a really significant impact. Um, and I know people have said, like, you feel like you're at the session. If people can post slides and the content, you, you feel like you're there without actually being there, which is honestly, just making us all better. Um, But that comes with caveats. So Twitter is an amazing tool to disseminate information, but you have to be very, very careful about what you put on the internet and what you get off the internet. So you can share quotes from sessions and and things and slides, but if you're sharing them without context and without kind of the whole story, it can potentially be misconstrued. So I guess be very cognizant of conference Twitter as well. Be very careful with what you're reading um, and make sure it's making sense. When you're tweeting from conferences and kind of things we actually even used to help put this podcast together with with things that were really popular that came out of Ecmid. Um, top tweets are things that tend to cover trials. So we talked about the late-breaking trials. Any table or graph or picture that can simplify or teach complex topics, things like that. If you can link the article the speaker is talking about or link the data or a reference, I mean, that's even better because, again, just be very, very careful about what you're getting off Twitter pictures of tables, things like that, that may be imperfect or inaccurate. Um, I know, honestly, Twitter's made me extremely conscious when I'm putting slides together for talks about exactly what's going in them, because those typos will live forever. And know
1: where that's going, yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, but ECMID is, is such a huge global conference that all of the tweets that came out of ECMID were actually analyzed. So Graham McKenzie does a lot of Twitter analytics, and then Fran Kerr was someone on Twitter who put together this kind of top tweet analysis. And if you scroll through these top tweets, you can see again, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about it again, but Staph Aureus was really, really hot this year. Um, That's
1: because it's so sexy to your point earlier.
0: (laughs) No, that was gram negative resistance. You're not listening to this podcast.
1: Everything's sexy.
0: Okay. Um, so one of the other late breakers was presented by Dr. Vance Fowler. And so this was a phase two study about something I've never heard of. So this drug is called Exabicase, I believe. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that to all the study investigators, but Exabicase, which was a lysine antibiotic. And so this is a, a novel class of antimicrobials, which we know we're always looking for new mechanisms of action. Um, and this was a first in class direct lytic agent. And it. Basically, has this like potent ability to hydrolyze cell wall. It's this like cell wall hydrolase enzyme. I'm sorry, I kind of misspoke there, but and it's derived from bacteriophages, and we'll get back to phages in a minute. Um, but basically, these this lytic agent made of these cell wall hydrolase enzymes works to cause peptidoglycan hydrolysis, which leads to this rapid species-specific cell death. Um, These lysins are really effective against biofilms. They can demonstrate synergy with other antibiotics. And the threshold for developing resistance in theory is pretty high. And so this phase 2 study that was presented, again, in the late-breaker trials was called Exabicase, which improved clinical responder rates in methicillin-resistant staph aureus bacteremia, including patients with endocarditis, compared to standard-of-care antibiotics in a first-in-patient phase 2 Study. And so what this was phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled superiority design proof of concept study that compared patients that received a Zabacase to standard of care in adults with staph aureus bacteremia. And again, that included patients with endocarditis. And so they looked at the safety, the tolerability, clinical outcome data at day 14 after study drug administration. And then it's phase two, so they're also collecting PK parameters on the patients. And their primary endpoint was clinical responder rate at day 14. They randomized 121 patients, three to two, to receive exazbacase plus standard of care or standard of care alone. And 80% of these patients were in the United States. 66% of them had MSSA, 33% had MRSA. And overall, the clinical response rate was 70.4% in the exazbacase arm and 60% in standard of care, which wasn't significant. But when they broke this down by patients with MRSA, the response rate was 74% in the treatment arm compared to 31% um, in the standard of care arm. So that's pretty compelling. And again, this is really prelim data, but that pretty much propelled this forward to phase three. So this will be a really interesting kind of adjunctive therapy. And we'll see we talked about how we don't have good therapies for staph aureus bacteremia. So I'm pretty interested to see where this goes.
1: That's what makes these late-breaker clinical trial sessions so cool, is you get to see new data like this and how they advanced through the phases from phase two to phase three. And so for those of you that are on Twitter, maybe you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or maybe you're on a long flight to Italy because you've recently found yourself unemployed, you're nodding your head in agreement because you've seen these data on Twitter and you know how important they are. But for those of you who aren't on Twitter, this is your last public service announcement get on Twitter, gather these data in real time, and be ahead of your colleagues. You can share these data with all the colleagues you have at your center, take them back even if you can't attend meetings like ECMID. These are data that ID clinicians and researchers all want to hear about, uh, and you can be the person that brings that to them through Twitter. So certainly something that uh, we want to advocate here and a great way to be involved with these meetings even if you can't go.
0: Okay, so I think we've, we've somewhat turned this into a PSA for Twitter, which, apologies, we didn't mean to, but it really is just a great way to engage and share these data. We look forward to sharing more data with you in Episodes 2, 3, and 4 of our ECMID Podcast Recap Series. And yes, as we recorded this, we quickly realized that this was going to be much more than an hour of content, so we are bringing you two hours of podcasts for which board-certified infectious diseases pharmacists can earn BCIDP credit, so up to two hours of credit for this series.
1: Yeah, Erin, I think we were a bit overambitious at this podcast, but hey, here's the good news. You just doubled your BCIDP credit. So for our listeners, remember you can get the links to all the BCIDP credit if you choose to from the SIDP website. And my name is Ryan Shields. Thanks for listening.
0: I'd like to hear you say BC IDP five times fast, Ryan. I think Um, I just did. I know. Well, don't worry. We have three more episodes to do so. But in the meantime, my name is Aaron McCreary. Thank you guys so much for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.